0: Welcome back to the podcast. This is Charlotte, Creative and Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith. Almost forgot my own title there for a second. And happy Tuesday! We are back in our Give Me a Reason to Believe series. And today's episode, I think this might be my favorite because it is the least obvious thing that you think about when thinking about where is there evidence of God's Word being true, and that is evidence through prophecies of nations. little mysterious title now i'm gonna leave a little mystery there and let michael dive into it here in just a second right after my little ad spot so if you are really enjoying this series and you want to go see some of these things that we've talked about like and i mean like physically go to some archaeological sites where you'll see evidence of biblical history happening i really want to invite you Onto our 2023 Israel trip. I know this is the fourth time you've heard this already, but we are going to Israel in January of 2023, which means you need to get your registration in very soon here and get it, if you don't have a passport, getting your passport done and all that wonderful stuff. So you can go check that out at evidenceforfaith.org 2023 Israel, or you can check out the links in the description of this podcast or wherever you're maybe listening to this at. Or you can also just go to our website and click on the events tab and you'll see it listed there. So I hope you check it out and I hope to see you on that trip. So as always, this program is supported by donors just like you. If you'd like to help support this broadcast and keep it free, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, at the number four, faith.org slash give. And here is Michael in Give Me a Reason to Believe, Session Four, Evidence Through Prophecies of Nations.
1: Hi, welcome to Evidence for Faith. It's your host, Michael Lane. So glad you're joining us today. And as we're continuing in this series, Give Me a Reason to Believe, which is actually the summation of what this whole ministry, Evidence for Faith, is about. But this is, again, this is one of the series. This is the fourth in our series that we did on our recent marine biology trip down in the Florida Keys. And this one today, what we're showing is Reasons to Believe, that the Bible true, that there is a God, that's what we're doing, and in this lesson we're, uh, we're calling this one Evidence Through Prophecies of Nations. Now, what do I mean by that? We're going to be dealing with prophecies, not like going to Walmart and standing in line and seeing, um, particularly in like December, all these predictions for the following year in these tabloid magazines and stuff. No, it's not like that. Did you know that the Bible Um, compared to other religious writings, is extremely unique when it comes to prophecy. I mean, this thing is a -a one-of-a-kind type of book. It's a compilation. Actually, a lot of people get confused by this. The Bible is not one book. It's a compilation of 66 different books, all put together in one cover. And uh, what they are, really, are 66 love letters. You've heard me talk about that frequently. It's written by over 40 authors in a span of over 2,000 years. And many of the books that you see in here contain prophecies concerning the future having to do with nations and and other things. We have lessons on our site talking about messianic prophecies of how the Jews would recognize the Messiah when he came. But we have more, There's, there's more type of prophecies in here and some of these are dealing with nations. Now what is fascinating about this is that some of these prophecies were written hundreds of years before the actual event took place. Now, because of that, these events that are listed in here, they happen exactly as what happens in the future. The Bible doesn't vary on these things. Mm it is going to be 100% accurate. You see, if someone is going to make a prediction saying they're speaking for the Lord, well, God is perfect. He doesn't make mistakes. So if he is going to say, the Lord told me this is what's going to happen, it has to happen that way. If it doesn't, that's a false prophet. What happens to false prophets? According to the word, somebody who's misspeaking God's word, that's penalty of death. You're not supposed to do that. And the thing is is this book is so unique because other writings, like the Quran um, and, and other religious writings of different type of, of religions and stuff, they don't have prophecies dealing with world future events. They just don't carry this. Um, the Quran does, I will give you this, the Quran does have a couple of prophecies in there, but they were prophecies that Muhammad made about himself. So he controlled that prophecy. Um, like for instance, that he would return to Mecca before he died. Well, he went to Mecca before he died. That's not the same type of prophecy we're talking about. We're not talking about that type of thing. And and what the Quran has, what Hindus have, what Buddhists have, what New Agers have, what Wiccas have, et cetera, et cetera. They don't have anything like this. This Bible is so unique because it contains prophecies of world events. And the thing is, they come true perfectly. So as we're going to get into this and we're going to talk, oh my gosh, I mean, this could be a whole semester's course in a college class. We don't have time for that. But what we are going to see is that God is a God of truth. And if he said something is going to happen at a certain time, you can bet your sweet bippy it's going to happen exactly as he said at that time frame. That's what happens. And like I say, if someone says that they're speaking for God and it doesn't come out, obviously they're a false prophet. God has a 100% success rate. So there are future events that haven't happened in here that are going to happen because um, God said it. And the thing is, he has given so many other prophecies concerning world events that have happened exactly as he said they would. For instance, let's get to the first one that we're going to talk about here today. Number one, the world kingdoms to come and go. So the world kingdoms are going to come and go. Now this was written, we're going to take a look in the book of Daniel. Daniel is a fascinating book. You want to study, a lot of people ask me, I want to study about end-time prophecies. And they often say, let's study Revelation to study end-time prophecy. You need to study the book of Daniel. Daniel has so much dealing with um, just the world events itself, but also about end-time prophecy, about what the Messiah would be like. He also describes what? Um, the the beast, as he calls him, will be like, and the tribulation period. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff having to do with end-time prophecy. So if you really want to study that, you go to Daniel. But Daniel is just full of world prophecies. Now, the thing is, Daniel wrote his book somewhere around, we're not exactly sure, but somewhere around 600 BC. Now, in this lesson today, we're going to be looking at dates. You might want to jot some of these dates down as uh, on a notepad or something as we're just keeping track of all this. I'll try and bring it back so you don't, if, if you're traveling in a car or something, you can't do that. Um, but I'll try and keep the years and just notice the years because we're going to be um, in BC and AD during different times here. But Daniel was written around 6 Now, in this book, uh, as we get to chapter 2 of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who has conquered Jerusalem, has conquered a lot of the countries in the world, Uh, He has had a bad dream. Maybe he had some bad Chinese that night. I don't know. But he had a bad dream. But God used this dream to let him see the future. Now, he didn't understand what he was seeing, scared the bejeebers out of him. And so he uh, eventually, to make the long story short, Daniel uh, comes up and tells him what the dream was and explains the dream. And this is part of this dream. Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 through 33, we read... You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. Now, Daniel is now going to describe what this is, because what this this image is that Nebuchadnezzar was allowed to see by God's direction here, but he doesn't understand it. Daniel's going to explain it to him. These are the different kingdoms of the world. What's going to happen during the period of the Gentiles? Um, That's what this is all focusing. Daniel focuses a lot on what happens during the period of the Gentiles. It's really interesting, by the way, if you don't know this. Daniel, when he starts off writing his book, Uh, Jerusalem and stuff is intact when it starts. Um, There's still a king in Jerusalem. So it's during the time of what we call in history, the time of the monarchy. Now, the thing is, in chapter 1, the monarchy ends and uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes and he begins to rule. And Israel no longer has a king. So Daniel, so cool, Daniel starts writing in the Hebrew language. And that's how the book begins. He's writing in the Hebrew language because the monarchy is still going on. But then, as the story continues the fall of Jerusalem, the cactus being led back, Daniel and his three friends and stuff he switches languages to Chaldean, the Babylonian language. And then, the next several chapters, he writes in the Chaldean. And what these are is what's going to happen to the Jews. During this period, because he's writing in a Gentile language, during the period of the Gentiles. This is so cool. Then later on in the book, when he's talking about the specifics having to do with Israel, he switches back to Hebrew. I mean, this is so cool. It goes back to the Hebrew language. So Daniel's really unique like this. But what this image is, is he's describing this image. This image, as it said, has a head of gold. Now, that represented the Babylonian Empire. Now, the Babylonian Empire happens, its period of time was 604 to 650 B.C. Now, remember, this was written right at the beginning of this, 600 B.C. So Babylon is the head kingdom, and it's the gold, represented by the gold. But then the next kingdom comes along, and it's chest and uh, arms of silver. This would be the next kingdom. Daniel's telling him what's going to come after. So he tells Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. But then after you will come another kingdom, and that's going to be the silver and that's the Medo-Persians. So Daniel's predicting who is going to take over and conquer the Babylonian Empire. It would be the Medes and the Persians together. That happened, and their empire reigned for a long time. It was from 650 B.C. to 337 B.C. That was the time of the Medo-Persian empires. So that took place. But then he says, then there's another kingdom that's going to come, where it says it's middle and thighs of bronze. Now this is undoubtedly the Greek empire. Matter of fact, Daniel goes on later on to explain this in another vision, all these empires coming, and he he talks about this one happening, um, represented by a goat that is traveling across the land so fast its feet aren't even touching the ground. In other words, this this kingdom, this this bronze part here, is going to be coming in so fast, so quickly, and it's going to conquer the world. That was Alexander the Great the Greek empire comes in and the world becomes Hellenized. Now, the Greek empire lasted from 337 because Alexander conquered the Persian empire. So from 337 BC to 70 BC. By the way, Daniel even mentions later on in his book how um, that kingdom, the the king who, who does this, who conquers the world so quickly, will suddenly die and his kingdom will be divided into four sections, which is exactly what happened in history. Well, after him comes the iron, the legs of iron. That is representing the Romans. And the Roman Empire is represented by iron. Now, it happened from about 68 B.C. um, to 500 A.D. We all know about the Roman Empire. Um, Huge kingdom conquered, basically, the world. And they were reigning until 500 A.D. So we start in 68 B.C., go to 500 A.D. So those kingdoms, Daniel is saying, but then he mentions another one. He talks about that there's iron uh, and clay mixed together being the feet of the organism or of, of the image. Now, the thing is the word being used here is not um, like you might think iron and, and clay being mixed together. No, it's as you read through Daniel and you see more about this, it's braided together. It's, it's organized. It's an organized pattern of iron and clay. This is a future event. This hasn't happened yet. This is a future event that still is waiting to occur. This deals with the end time prophecies and it deals with the coming of the beast, or as many people call it, the Antichrist. Um, that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> Maybe it's coming very soon um, but it hasn't happened yet. And then That kingdom will be destroyed, it will last just a short period of time, um, just uh, a very short period of time, like seven years, and then what will happen, it's destroyed by, in the image, a rock coming. And the the rock, also being a future event, this hasn't happened, that obviously comes and destroys the iron and the clay feet, and destroys it totally, and the uh, rock grows into a great mountain that lasts forever, that's the future coming back of the Messiah. Um, when Jesus returns. That's that one. So Daniel, he goes into more detail. We don't have time to go through. I mean, this could be actually a semester's class just studying Daniel and prophecies. There's so many in there. But it's fascinating that that this was written at 600 B.C., yet it details all these things even up into the future events that are about to come. It's remarkably accurate, Daniel is. Now, let's move to the second one very quickly here. Let's take a look at another prophecy found in the Bible that came true, that was written hundreds of years before. Now, in this case, we're going to go to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel has a lot of prophecies dealing with uh, world history. And we're going to call this one, Egypt, never a world power again. Egypt, never a world power again. Now, this was written, when did Ezekiel live? Well, he was a contemporary of like Daniel. He lived around five We believe he wrote this somewhere between 590 B.C. to 570 B.C., somewhere in there. We don't know, he didn't put a date on it, um, but somewhere in there, in the B.C. period, he wrote this. And let's take a look at Ezekiel chapter 29, verse 15, and we read this. It shall be the most lowly of kingdoms, and never again exalt itself above the nations. And I will make them so small, they will never again rule over the nations. So what country is he talking about? Well, by the title I gave you, this is he's talking about Egypt. He actually mentions Egypt is going to be like this. Now, what is fascinating, at 590 to 570 BC, Egypt was still a major world power. Major world power. Uh, Over the past 2,500 years, since this, though, has taken place, this prophecy was written Egypt lost its world power status, and it still, to this day, is not a world power. Ezekiel wrote this. If you're getting this, Ezekiel wrote this, Egypt is a world power. He says, God says, you're never going to be a world power again. And so they fell, and they were no longer a world power. And for 2,500 years, they have not been a world power. Um, Egypt um, I mean, there have been times people tried to make it that when Cleopatra um, married Julius Caesar and then had her um, her affair with Mark Antony. She tried to make Egypt back into a world power, but it, it wasn't. It's been ruled by the Greeks. Alexander the Great conquered it. The Romans conquered it. Then it was the Ottomans conquered it. Then Europeans came. Even the French, Napoleon came, conquered Egypt. Egypt has never been a world power again, which is fascinating because up to the time Ezekiel wrote this, it always had been. But he predicted, actually he was told by God, and um, declared Egypt will never be a world power again. And today, even today, it's just a small independent nation. Let's go to the third one. Talking about the kingdom of Edom, now a lot of people wonder, where in the world is Edom? I don't even ever hear about that one. Well, Edom, um, well, let me give you a title of this one. This is going to be the downfall of Edom. Number three is the downfall of Eden. Now this was written, we're going to be back in Ezekiel, so I just told you Ezekiel uh, was writing between 590 and 570 B.C. So in this case, he's focusing not on Egypt now. He's focusing on a kingdom called Edom. Edom was to the south of Israel. um, And this is what he wrote. Ezekiel 25, verses 12 through 13, we read, Thus says the Lord God, Because Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah, and grievously offended in taking vengeance on them. Therefore, Thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and cut it off from man and beast. I will make it desolate. Now, this is a fascinating prophecy. As I said, Edom is a country that was to the south of um, Judah and goes all the way down to the, the Gulf of Aqaba and stuff. And, and in that area in parts of Saudi Arabia and parts of Jordan today, that was Edom. And uh, this prophecy was actually fulfilled in the first century BC. Now remember, this was written 500 years before that, between 590 and 570 BC, yet it was fulfilled in the first century BC. What happened was this. The nation of Edom, like I say, located to the south, a little bit east of Israel, was almost annihilated by King David. But He didn't destroy it totally. Around 715, they won back their independence from King Ahaz. Um, And the reason that this prophecy, why God is so upset with them um, and dooming their nation is because of what Edom did when the Babylonians came from, um, from the Chaldean area and attacked and destroyed Jerusalem and burnt the temple. The thing is, the people of Edom were celebrating on the side, they were like a cheering section for the Babylonians. Yeah, destroy those Jews. Yeah, let's you know kill them and stuff. So they acted like a cheering section, and this happened in five eighty six B.C. The Babylon destroyed them. So God says, because you acted as a cheering section, you're doomed, and the kingdom was destroyed in the first century, and uh, it, to this day, the kingdom of Edom, no one lives there. To this day. I mean, God said it would be no more. It is no more, and which is strange because at the time of this, Edom was a very big country. And today it's nothing. It's a tourist attraction. You've seen pictures of it in movies and stuff. Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, they have a picture uh, of one of the um, buildings there. And and it's very popular in tourist trips to the Middle East to go to to Edom and see the remains because no one lives there. Well, let's go to number four. This is another fascinating prophecy. Um, again, we're going to stay with Ezekiel, but this one we're going to call The Destruction of Mighty Tyre. Mighty Tyre. Now, again, this was written probably around 587 B.C. So around 587, so just jot that down. Remember, it's B.C., so it's we're working. As the numbers get smaller, you're coming forward in time. But when we get to Ezekiel, chapter uh, 26, verses 3 through 14, God really is coming down on this city called Tyre. Now, Tyre is a Phoenician city. It's on the coast of the Mediterranean, and this is what he says. Now, let me read the passage, and then let me explain to you what's going on with this capital of the the Phoenicians. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will bring up many nations against you. Now, that's an interesting statement right there. Many nations are going to come and attack this city as the sea brings up its waves. Now, moving down a few, uh, few verses, we read, They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. Your stones and timbers, this is so cool, they will cast into the midst of the waters, meaning the Mediterranean. I will make you a bare rock. You shall be a place for the spreading of nets. You shall never be rebuilt, for I am the Lord, I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Now, when this is being written, when Ezekiel is writing this around 587 BC, Tyre, the city of Phoenicia, had reached its zenith. It was considered an impregnable city that people could never conquer. The reason for that? Actually, there's two cities of Tyre. There was one on the mainland, right there along the coast of the Mediterranean, in what is today present-day Lebanon, it sat there, but a mile offshore there was an island that the Phoenicians built a walled city on this island, and that was also called Tyre. So you had the land Tyre, you had the the ocean uh, island Tyre combined. So the thing is, um, when when the land, uh, people, armies were coming, the people on the land, um, the mainland, they would get in their boats and stuff because the Phoenicians were very well known for their navies and stuff. They would take their boats and go across the mile gap there in deep water and they would get to the island and that's where they would live. Now, the land city could easily be destroyed by the coming armies. But in those days, there were no... Uh, ships with, like, you know, cannons or anything to do siege equipment, like what we saw in World War II in the island hopping campaigns of the Pacific. There was nothing to bombard with, and so um, the city was considered impregnable. And many people tried to attack it um, because it's it's sitting offshore. Uh, For instance, Nebuchadnezzar, who conquered the world, most of the world, um, he tried to conquer. Before him was the Assyrians. The the Assyrians tried to conquer the city. Everybody went to the island one. He could never attack uh, the Sinacrib and others could not defeat the island um, city. When Nebuchadnezzar came after the Assyrians, he too spent a long time. Do you know he spent 13 years trying to figure out a way. To conquer that city? He conquered, as always, the land city was destroyed. But trying to conquer the one out into the ocean, a mile offshore, they could never do. Thirteen years Nebuchadnezzar wasted. He never conquered it. Thus, Tyre was considered the city that is unconquerable. So at this time, as Nebuchadnezzar is failing at this, Ezekiel gets this prophecy that this city is going to be destroyed, that many nations are going to come against it. Well, many nations did. And then it would be fallen. It would fall. And it happened in 332 BC. Alexander the Great, with the Macedonians uh, coming down from the north, conquered the land city very quickly. That was a quick battle and over. His massive army was easily able to defeat the the mainland city of, of Tyre. But as before, the Tyrrhenians just took to their boats and went over and lived into that city. And they could fish from the city. So they had water uh, from cisterns and stuff. They could they had water. There was plenty of water, was plenty of food, et cetera, et cetera. So they didn't have a problem. They could just uh, stay there as they did for 13 years against the, the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. But what happened? Is when Alexander the came and came up and conquered the land and they fled to the city, they mocked and made fun of Alexander from the shah, shouting from the walls of the, the island city. They made fun of him. Not a wise thing to do to Alexander the Great. Alexander turned around walked over and picked up. He destroyed the city. It was just laying in rubbles. And he picked up handfuls of the rubble of the the fallen buildings and walls and stuff like this, picked it up, walked over to the sea, and threw it into the water. And he commanded his generals and his architects, I want you to take the remains of this city that we've destroyed here, and I want you to throw it into the sea so that we can make a walkway out to that island, a mile out there, make it wide enough that we can bring our siege equipment and our soldiers straight out there. Now, what was the prophecy? It said that the city would be thrown into the sea. And this is written hundreds of years beforehand. You know, this is written like 300 years before this event takes place. This is is amazing because it's exactly... What Alexander did. He took his army. Um, They spent a short period of time throwing the stuff out into the city. The The Tyrrhenians saw, whoa, hey, he's bringing an army out here. No one's ever done that before. And they tried, and they delayed him at times. They would attack with their ships and stuff. But Alexander also used some of the ships from other countries that he had conquered, um, and he had them come down, and he made also assaults on the island, putting catapults on the boats out there and throwing the big stones and stuff Against the city walls, out on this thing. I mean, this is amazing. This is a siege of an island. Uh, like first time in history, this ever took place like this, and it was Alexander the Great who did it. Well, in in just a, a short period of time, he conquered the city, um, and he he did it very quickly. Uh, well, it was seven months is what it took him to do it. It took him seven months. But compared to Alexander to Nebuchadnezzar, who spent 13 years and failed, Alexander accomplished it in, in seven months. Built the walkway out there. And to this day, you can walk or even ro- drive your car from mainland out to that island place. Um, the roadway that Alexander built is called Alexander's Mole. And the ancient city, the remains of the ancient city are still there. The mole has been filled in by erosion and stuff uh, from the the mainland, washing up along the sides. It's gotten wider since Alexander built it. And the city itself, the island out there has expanded. They've added to it. They've put some um, small buildings and stuff out there, some businesses. But the city has never come back. Um, And remember, God said it would never be rebuilt. Is what it says in there. Um, you shall never be rebuilt. I'm going to make you a place for spreading me- uh, the nets. They did attempt though, the Phoenicians did, after the city did fall, um, they did 58 years later. Partially they were going to rebuild it, but they never got it done. They never rebuilt the city and it survived partially rebuilt uh, until 1124 AD during the period of the Crusades when the Crusaders came. And even they started to rebuild the city, but they never finished it. And then in 1291, the the Muslims, the Mamluk Muslims came, and they totally destroyed the city again. Uh, the, the, what had been slowly built up was it, it was totally destroyed. So the city never came back and it was laid to ashes. Today, modern Tyre has some, um, like I said, the island's been expanded, and there's some businesses and stuff around. You can drive around the island and stuff, but the city was never rebuilt. The ancient city of Tyre still sits in ruins. It's a tourist attraction today, but you know what else is really interesting? It's a place where fishermen have been coming for centuries to spread their nets over the ruins to let them dry. What did the Bible say? What did God say? they would spread the nets there and it would never be rebuilt. Today it's a tourist attraction because the ruins are still there, never got rebuilt. Let's go to number five, Uh, the destruction of Nineveh. The destruction of Nineveh. Now this um, was written around 630 AD by the minor prophet Nahum. Nahum writes about the city of Nineveh. Yes, Nineveh is the city where, if you recall, Jonah went. Uh, It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It, too, was considered an impregnable city. It was also one of the largest cities ever in the ancient world, boasting, as um, archaeologists and historians tell us, it had a population with its suburbs of over 200,000 people. I mean, that's a huge city even in our day today. But Nahum writes something about this city because it had a river flowing right next to it. It was considered impregnable. And he writes in his book, Nahum chapter 1, verse 14, we read, The Lord has given commandment about you. He's speaking about Nineveh. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. Now get this. I will make you a grave for you are vile. Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrians, God says, I'm going to destroy you and make you a grave. In other words, he's going to bury this city. And, well, look what happens. Now, in around 612 B.C., this city is going to be um, turned into a grave. It was conquered, and it was destroyed in 612 B.C. And not just was it conquered, what happened after the city was destroyed and conquered a sandstorm came and totally buried the city. Do you know? For centuries, skeptics of the Bible said there never was a Nineveh because there was no sign of it. They said, "Oh, it's just a mythical city that was in the Bible." But in the uh, mid 1800s, when biblical archaeology was in its infancy and just starting, an archaeologist historian went out looking for it because he said, "If it's in the Bible, I believe the Bible's true." Yet. Critics and science and historians were saying, no, there never was a Nineveh. No, he says it's in the Bible. I'm going to believe what God says. And so he went out and started digging. And sure enough, they found the ancient city of Nineveh buried in the sand. And they started excavating it out. And they'd been excavating and excavating until just a little about a decade or so ago when ISIS came to power. ISIS... Unfortunately, bulldozed the ruins, the walls, the gates and stuff, and blasted it with explosives, destroying everything that they could. And it's so sad. But um, it's turned, you know, it's, it's just rubble basically today. A few parts of the gates are still, and the walls are still standing, but ISIS and the stupidity of what they did, they destroyed most of it. But it's so fascinating that Nahum predicted the fall of Nineveh And he also says this. Now, I saved the best for for last on this story. This is so cool. In Nahum chapter 3, verse 11, he talks about how Nineveh is going to fall. And we read, you will also be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek refuge from the enemy. But did you catch that? He was going to be falling because they were drunk. Well, guess what? According to the ancient historian uh, Diodorus uh, um, Siculus, he wrote the fall of Nineveh, wrote it down. And this is what he wrote. Quote, the Assyrian king gave much wine to his soldiers. Deserters told this to the enemy who attacked that night. Nahum, years before it ever took place, said Nineveh was going to fall. It would be turned into a grave, and it would, be, it would fall when the soldiers, when the inhabitants were drunk. And that's exactly what happened. Wow, how accurate is that, huh? That God even told Nahum, the people are going to be drunk when the city falls. They wouldn't even realize what's happening, and that's what happened. Uh, Number six, let's go to the fall of Babylon. Since we're at Nineveh, let's just go a little bit south and to the east. Let's go to Babylon, capital of the Chaldeans. Um, That's where Nebuchadnezzar was. He built this massive city um, to its height. Now, we're going to go to the book of Isaiah for this one. Now, Isaiah lived around 680 B.C. This is before Nebuchadnezzar, even. Uh, Babylon was already there, but it was not the massive city that Nebuchadnezzar would make it. But um, it was a huge city at that point anyway. So around 680 B.C., so mark that one down, 680 B.C., Isaiah the prophet writes this. And Babylon, the the glory of kingdoms, the splendor of... Pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. In other words, he's saying the city of Babylon is going to be destroyed. The capital of the Chaldeans is going to be destroyed. God says it's going to happen. Now, why is this interesting? A lot of ancient cities fell. Babylon is not like your normal city of the ancient world. Even though Tyre was considered impregnable, it fell. Nineveh was considered impregnable, it fell. It fell. But both these cities were nothing compared to the structure of how Babylon was put together, particularly when Nebuchadnezzar became king. It had a river running right through the middle of the city. Thus, in ancient times, when people tried to destroy cities and conquer cities, they often cut off the water supply. Couldn't cut off the water supply very well with a whole river flowing through the middle of the city. But you might think, well, then they could bring boats in. No. Uh, The Babylonians anticipated that. So they put iron bars above the river, where the river comes in and where it exits. They put iron bars that went down into the water, preventing any boat from coming in. Pretty smart. Not only that, according to the Greeks, the city of Babylon had a food supply, stores up of food that would last over a decade. So you're not gonna starve them into submission very easily. They got plenty of water, they got plenty of food, but the killer was this one, why it was so impregnable. Uh, Greek historians tell us the walls of Babylon were 300 feet high. That's the length of a football field standing up. That's a massive, massive wall. You could see the city from miles away. Matter of fact, we know that the city had glazed tile on the outside, it was absolutely gorgeous. But because of these massive walls having water, having food, it was considered to be impregnable. Babylon would never fall. It was the symbol of being unconquerable. That was Babylon. Yet Isaiah is saying at 680 BC, it's going to fall. It's going to fall. And Isaiah is not done there. Babylon did fall in five. 39. So this is almost you know, oh, well over 200 years after he makes his prophecy. It does fall in three or 539 BC. But Isaiah has some, says something else about this. In Isaiah chapter 13, verse 17, he says, "Who's going to do it?" It reads, "Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them." Who's the Medes? At the time of Isaiah's writing, this the Medes were nomadic tribes throughout uh, present-day Iraq um, and Iran in that area. The Medes were just all scattered around. They were not an organized kingdom. Definitely did not have any way, it seems like, of taking down this city. But Isaiah says hundreds of years before, no, the Medes, this little nomadic tribe, they are going to conquer Babylon. And they did. And in Isaiah 45, it stated that Babylon would even fall with its doors wide open. How, why would they open up the door? What's going on? How did the doors? Yes, Babylon was not conquered by burning the um, the city gates. It was not conquered by breaching through the walls. How in the world it fell? How did the Medes do this? It was fascinating what actually happened, because this is exactly what did happen, that the doors were opened up and the soldiers, the enemy, walked in because there was a big party going on. People inside the city of Babylon were under siege, but they didn't care about it because they knew their city was impregnable. If you go back to the book of Daniel in chapter 5, there's a very very well-known story about the handwriting on the wall that and it says in Daniel chapter 5 verses 30 and 31 that very night Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old that's how it fell notice who who conquered it the Medes now how it happened let me explain to you because this is fascinating the way Babylon fell And this impregnable city, you couldn't take out the walls, but that river running through it. But, But there was iron bars. So what they did, what the Medes did, is they dug a canal all around the city and diverted the route of the water of the river around the city. When that happened, the river going through the city dried up, and the people, the soldiers, the enemy, walked in to the city. They went in, they opened up the gates, and the enemy came in and conquered it. Um, It it says, the Greeks tell us that it took three days uh, because the city was so great and the people were so drunk from the big party going on that um, it took three days before the whole city even realized that they'd been conquered. How cool is that? And and it even tells us, you know, who was going to do it. It would be uh, the Medes that would do this thing. That's just amazing. So, Jeremiah even declared in this story, um, the story that the city would fall after um, 70 years of captivity with the Jews. Uh, this And it's exactly what happened. Let, let's get into that one. Let's talk about the, the captivity of the Jews, the rebuilding of um, and the temple and stuff. This is number seven, um, the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. Now this was written, we're going to be in Isaiah still, so around 680 BC. When Isaiah is writing this, Jerusalem is in its largest extent ever it had been. It's the biggest city it had ever been, the most powerful it had ever been, and the temple is standing. But this is what he tells us. In Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28, now get this, because he names people. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and the temple, your foundation, shall be laid. Okay, what is this saying? Okay, the prophet Isaiah, around 680 B.C., is talking about how Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt, how the temple will be rebuilt. Well, that's amazing, because you understand when he wrote this, the city was standing, the temple was standing. So (laughs) um, at this time, Jerusalem is, like I say, at its greatest size and greatest power at that point in its history. And this prophecy had to seem strange to everybody. What do you mean the temple is going to be rebuilt? The city's walls and the city's going to be rebuilt. It's all standing when Isaiah wrote this. But that's what happened. And did you notice that he even names the person who's going to do it? In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 13, he says, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make his way straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. Now, this was written, like I say, around 680 B.C. Around 580 B.C., Jeremiah says that the Babylonians, who were going to conquer and destroy uh, the city also, because he too predicted Jerusalem would fall, He said the Babylonians are going to do it. And and then after being in captivity for 70 years, Jeremiah says, they will be allowed to come back. And then in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11, we read, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So Jeremiah predicts that the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar are going to conquer the city. They will take them in captivity for 70 years, and then they will be back. And Isaiah Hundreds of years before this says that Jerusalem's going to fall, the temple will be destroyed, and um, they will be in exile. But They'll come back because a guy named Cyrus will be born who will do all this. And that's exactly what happened. The Bible nailed it perfectly. In his first year of reigning, Cyrus decreed to the Jews after conquering Babylon. He declared and made a decree to the Jews telling them to go back to their temple. And he gave them permission to even take the artifacts that Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple to take it back. Now we know that this has happened, that this is true. But we archaeology discovered something just absolutely fascinating pertaining to this. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder, and I have a copy of it right here um, on the table. This is a replica of the thing, and this is how Babylonian and the well, books were done back in those days of uh, the Babylonians and uh, the Medes and stuff. Um, it's made of clay. You can see it's written in their language, and what would happen. you would roll this onto clay or plaster or something and then it would give you the imprint and you could sit and read it this was a library book if you will this is an official document from cyrus and this copy here has written in here that the jews will be released to go back to jerusalem to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple it's actually written here what you saw in the bible took place and this artifact, it's called the Cyrus Cylinder, was discovered in 1879, that's AD, was discovered. Oh my gosh, how accurate the Bible is. I mean, do you get that? That Jerusalem was standing. Isaiah says it's going to be conquered. It's going to be conquered. They're going to, they're going to be in captivity. The Babylonians are going to do this. And then he says, but don't worry about it, because the city will be rebuilt by a guy named Cyrus. Cyrus isn't even born yet. Yet Cyrus does this. This all fits in absolutely perfectly and we know this is all true because archaeology and history has shown it to be exactly what the Bible says. Now time doesn't permit us to go into other prophecies. We just had some time here to do a few here and I wanted to show you how accurate this Bible is. This is a remarkable book. There's many other prophecies concerning the world that have come true, and not just world, uh, certain individuals and stuff like Cyrus and things. There are so many prophecies in here, and every one of the prophecies dealing with the ancient world came true exactly as they were written, as they were foretold, even hundreds of years later. They came true, and we still see this. There's future prophecies that are unfolding right now, possibly, with uh, the way the world events are going. Again, it's matching exactly what God says in the book of Daniel and Revelation. Some of these things seem to be appearing and happening right before our eyes as we're living through this today. Fascinating, fascinating discussions and, and studies that you find with this book. This is not a normal book. This Don't treat this like a normal book. This is the inspired Word of God, 66 love letters from a loving God to us, telling us not just history, but telling us how to have eternal life and how to live a successful life, how to have good friendships, how to have a good marriage, how to run a good business. All these details are found in the Word of God. I hope you take time and study this. It's fascinating. Well, I would love to go further with you on some of these, but we just don't have time. There's so many world prophecies, like I say, it would take a whole semester um, just to talk about the ancient world prophecies. And and it is fascinating, though, to take a look at books of like ancient history and compare that to what the Bible says. And it's amazing. The Bible is 100% accurate. No other religion has anything like that. This is real, folks, and I hope you realize that. Well, thanks for joining us, and until we meet again, take care, and may God bless.
0: Thanks for tuning in, and thank you to our donors who make this program possible. Evidence for Faith is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry based in the USA. You can support this broadcast by donating online using the links in the description, and don't forget to leave us a comment, a review, likes, and shares to feed the algorithm and help others find this content. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.